Listener Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It's Monday the 20th of September. Tom Tilly back with you. A big thank you to Katrina Blowers for filling in as the host of The Briefing for the last three weeks while my partner and I were having a baby. Hello, Annika. Hello, Tom, and congratulations, a beautiful, big, bouncing boy. (laughs) How did it all go? Um, It went incredibly well. An amazing birth, incredible gutsy work by Amanda to bring this beautiful boy into the world. And yeah, as you say, he's really healthy. And I I feel for anyone who has any complications along the way, because even when it goes perfectly well, it is still such a a gruelling but uh, a very beautiful experience. Now we do pre-dawn radio. We get up to deliver you this. How is it going with a baby screaming oh, all night? Oh, well, he was grunting like a wombat all night. Um, so we were sort of contending with that. I've had about three hours sleep. But yeah, mostly he's he's so good. Hardly cries. Um, he's amazing. So look, it's a beautiful thing to now have a, a child in this world. I'm seven kilometres away from him right now, but I know wherever I go... In life, from this point forward, I've got a little <laughs> little boy there, growing up in this this wonderful world. So yeah, it's a super positive thing. Here we are on the briefing again. In, in this episode, in the second half, we're actually talking about deep fakes. Um, it's the dark side of AI technology. These AI techniques learn how an actor's face moves, how the lighting changes, how the actor may sound, and things, and then allows you to basically swap that actor into another image. Yes, and then what people do is turn it into porn, which can be devastating for people's reputations. That's our briefing in the second half of this episode. First, here are the big news stories of today. Christian Porter has resigned from Federal Cabinet. Here's the Prime Minister announcing it yesterday afternoon, saying the move means ministerial standards have been upheld. He has taken the appropriate course of action to uphold those standards by tendering his resignation as a minister this afternoon, and I have accepted his resignation. His actions have been about upholding the standards. Yeah, so Christian Porter resigned as the Industry and Science Minister yesterday, almost a week after it was revealed he'd received a large amount of money, um, rumoured to be around a million dollars, from anonymous donors. Um, This was all to pay for his defamation proceeding against the ABC, and that action centred around an article uh, published by the ABC which revealed a rape allegation alleged to have happened 33 years ago and strenuously denied by Christian Porter. Labor leader Anthony Albanese has hit back at the PM's comments, saying Porter's resignation is an attempt to prevent the source of the funds from being revealed. He hasn't sacked Christian Porter. Christian Porter resigned so as to try to avoid his obligations to release where this up to $1 million came from. So Christian Porter will remain in Parliament as a backbencher and he says that he'll recontest the WA seat of Pierce in the next election. Do you really think that's going to happen, Annika? Because if he hasn't met the basic principle of disclosing who's given him this money, can he really stay on as an MP? I would say no. The rules, um, there are rules around members of registered interests. We basically get a printout of all 226 MPs and they have to say where they got everything from, you know, a Christmas ham that may have been dropped off mm. from a lobby group. It's um, pretty strict and anything worth more than about $300 from 
a non-official source has to be declared. So there are higher standards for ministers, that's correct. They have their own ministerial code, but all MPs also have to come clean on this. So he's still going to be under pressure. So where will it go from here, do you think? Look, I would be surprised if he did run for that seat at the next election. We see a lot of MPs do this, Julie Bishop notably, after um, the spill that she was involved in when she put her name forward, she stood down from the Cabinet, sat on the backbench, come closer to the election, stood down from the seat. The reason he might not be doing that now is the Prime Minister only has a one-seat majority. Uh, Pierce has always been somewhat of a tight margin over there, uh, and you'd have to think, given his current controversies, Labor would throw a lot of energy at it. Now, Sam Dastyari was in a similar situation in terms of disclosure. Mm. Uh, he left quite promptly. I don't want to make, you know, compare apples with pears, but a lot of people are making that. He's a senator, so they can quit and you can bang another person and you don't need to have an election. The difference is Porter's in the lower house, so there would have to be a by-election. They're very expensive and very annoying. Voters tend to hate them. Yeah, it all sounds very messy. Um, I have to remember he, he was the Attorney General, so he stepped down from that, took this new ministry, and now he's stepped down from that as well. So as we've just been discussing, the big question remains whether he stays on as an MP. And Victoria's laid out its path out of lockdown. It'll be done in a staggered and measured and proportionate, a cautious way. But we are opening up, be in no doubt about that. And there will be no turning back. Cautious, he is not wrong. That was Premier Daniel Andrews speaking yesterday. Rules will start to ease once 80% of all Victorians over the age of 16 have had at least one jab of the COVID vaccine. So that's expected within the next week. And that'll mean contactless recreational sports such as tennis and golf can return. And then hospitality and retail will be able to open. Um, outdoor as and travel limits will be scrapped at 70% double doses. And then hospitality and retail will return indoors as well once you hit 80%. There's a hope that you might be at 80% by the time for the Melbourne Cup, Annika. Yeah, it's looking about that week, which is in some ways great news. But for people that have been in lockdown for a long time, including last year, and I've done this year's but not last year's, it's still another seven weeks away. So it's a very long roadmap out for Victorians. But it's interesting because it's all based on when hospitalizations and deaths will peak. And even based on that very cautious approach, they're still saying hospital cases will peak at about 4,500 in mid-December. And deaths, of course, with that lag in January are expected to peak at around 2,200. So I guess a lot of worry for the hospital system there. Yeah, I mean, that death figure is pretty startling. It's more than double what we've already seen so far in the whole pandemic. And the New South Wales government has lifted all but a few restrictions on Sydney's hotspot LGAs, meaning the areas in the west and south will still come under the same rules as the rest of the city. We still have relatively high case numbers in those areas, uh, but this is a wonderful step forward in equalising all of Greater Sydney in relation to COVID rules. That's the Premier Gladys Berejiklian and that will come as a massive relief to those people in those parts of Sydney. They've done it particularly tough. Um, they'll join the rest of the, the city in having no limits on outdoor daily exercises and expanded travel restrictions. Um, but essential workers from those areas will still have to get a permit to travel outside and be tested. So, yeah, it's interesting what's happening in Sydney right now. Driving around on the weekend, um, the mood is really buoyant. It was the first weekend where we had the new picnic rules and people were outside enjoying the sunshine. 
we're streets ahead of Victoria in terms of our vaccine rollout as well. We're going to hit double dose 70% um, in about three weeks. So yeah, there's a real mood of positivity here. Whereas it sounds like, Annika, I got the sense you feel like it's still too cautious for a lot of people in Victoria. Look, with those hospital rates, it's hard to say too cautious. It's just the reality. But seven weeks more, uh, we've got stronger restrictions down here too. Still only allowed 10 kilometres from your home. That'll be pushed out to 15 next week, hopefully. We still have a curfew and we're also allowed to go on picnics, but we've had rotten weather. You guys are getting like <laughs> 27 and sunny. So maybe that has something to do with the mood. And the billionaire space race continues. First, it was Branson and Bezos in July, and now Elon Musk. SpaceX CEO Elon Musk has marked the safe return of his company's first flight, an all-civilian space flight, with a donation of $50 million. So the flight with four space tourists, and Elon Musk wasn't one of them, unlike the other billionaires, he didn't go up with his ship. Anyway, they spent three days orbiting the Earth up in space before landing off the coast of the US yesterday. To touch the uh, Atlantic Ocean there. Tech CEO Jared Isaacman reportedly paid $200 million for him and three others to fly on board one of Musk's rockets. So very exciting. Um, I don't know about Musk not going up himself, though. <laughs> that wouldn't fill me with confidence, Tom. No, definitely not. Apparently, $50 million of that $200 million, um, went to a children's hospital, which is good. Um, yeah, it looks pretty exciting, and it's good to see Musk getting on board. Uh, yeah, I, I would have thought he would have gone up with his spacecraft. You know, he's a great mind, a great uh, engineer, and you'd think his <laughs> ship would be safe enough for him to go up to, but apparently he didn't want to. Um, still a long way from Mars, though, Annika, this, this mission, which is what he really wants to do eventually. So still a long way to go. All right, that's it from Annika and I. Um, coming up, Katrina and Antoinette talking deep fakes. On today's briefing, we are diving into the topic of deep fakes. Now, these have been called the modern version of photoshopping. They use a form of artificial intelligence called deep learning, and they make fake images that look so real, you might have believed it was true when you first saw that video of Jon Snow apologising for the terrible end to Game of Thrones, or Mark Zuckerberg bragging about having control over billions of people's data. We're going to talk to a deep fake expert in just a sec on what they are, how they work and how you can spot one and also why it can happen to anyone. And there's a more sinister side to this, which we're going to explore first. And that's how the technology is being weaponized against women. Noelle Martin was 18 years old when, after Googling herself, she was horrified to discover countless doctored, sexualized images of herself online. She's since become an activist and a law reform campaigner on this very issue, as well as the 2019 Young West Australian of the Year, and Noelle joins us now. Noelle, thanks so much for chatting with us today. There's so much to unpack here, but first off, tell us about the impact of discovering something like this. You know, when something happens to you, that's completely out of your control. Well, I think the impact is completely life-shattering and lifelong. Personally, because of the nature of the abuse towards me, it started off as doctored images and then proceeded to 
videos to a deep fake and another video. And so I think over time my emotional reaction changed because I think I was just so I've been so used to it happening in my life. But it absolutely has a lifelong impact that extends to your employment, your employability, your friendships, your relationships, every part of your life is impacted by this. And what's really frustrating is if this happens to you, you're the one that has to deal with the consequences of other people's actions, while the people that are actually responsible for creating and distributing this they evade any accountability. They can get away with it scot-free. And that's just not good enough in 2021. Okay, so let's talk about accountability. Are there any laws to address this and are they working? In Australia, we do have specific image-based sexual abuse laws that criminalise the distribution of altered intimate videos. And so in some ways, we have non-specific deepfake legislation. But the problem with that is even though we have it, it's holding people accountable where there might be overseas or it's identifying who is responsible. And so while we might have some laws, the problem is how they're actually enforced and whether the websites that host this dealt with or the people that are responsible for distributing the content or creating the content, regardless of where they are, are held accountable. So there's a massive issue with with enforcement. So given these are, these are massive issues that you've pointed out, what support would you like to see implemented to help victims? What needs to change? Well, I think we need to have conversations, especially in workplaces and employment practices, need to be in place that consider the implications of having fake content and especially fake pornographic content of people out there on the internet. The people who are targets of this shouldn't have to be impacted by, you know, getting jobs because people have decided that they're going to misappropriate their name or their image or their likeness. And so I think workplaces need to really think about what needs to be done if things are discovered of people. That was deep fake activist Noel Martin. We'd now like to bring in Dr. Mashuda Glencross from the Uni of Queensland. She specialises in the growing threat of deep fakes and she's going to help us break down the scale of the problem and why addressing it can be really tough. In very simple terms, for those who have heard of it but are unsure of exactly what it means, what is a deep mm-hmm. fake? Computer graphics has been around for a long time and we've been using it in movies for decades to create synthetic actors, right, that look real. But this process needs a lot of manual work to create 3D models and light them with computer-generated effects and make them look very realistic. So it's quite expensive. Yeah. What people now call deep fakes are actually synthetic video content or images made by computers that use newer techniques. And these combine certain elements of computer graphics, but with AI techniques, in particular AI techniques called generative machine learning. And what this really means is that these AI techniques learn how an actor's face moves, how the lighting changes, how the actor may sound and things, and then 
allows you to basically swap that actor into another image or another video and actually control what they say as well. This is deeply concerning, I'm sure, to a lot of people, although I'm sure it does have the capacity for good. We also know that deep fakes are mostly weaponized against women and girls, and this is a dangerous new frontier in revenge porn. So it sounds like it is getting easier to make. Who can make it? Do you just need a laptop? What do you need? So at the moment, it's actually not as simple to make a deep fake as many people would think because you do need quite a lot of compute resources. So, yeah, you need a laptop. You need an ac- access to quite a lot of compute resources to be able to run the AI algorithms because they take time to train and they're repeating a lot of computations. Although it's not a manual process, it's still a time-consuming process. The quality of deepfakes you get through an automated process isn't really very good at the moment. So they're quite easy to spot Mm -hmm. by people who know what they're looking at. But technology continues to improve. The algorithms continue to improve. And so everybody in the area has agreed that really there's going to come a point when it's going to be really hard to discriminate deepfakes at the moment, how do you spot a deep fake? Something to do with unnatural eye movement? What other things can you look out for? You can get artefacts in the images. So, for example, things like people's eyebrows potentially being in the wrong place, unnatural eye movements, lighting that's inconsistent with the scene, various different kinds of cutting and tearing type of artefacts in the images, The movement of the mouth may not be absolutely correct and natural. There are a whole range of things that allow you to spot them. And some of the first viral deepfake videos featured famous women like Scarlett Johansson and Gal Gadot. Um, But any, any one of us could be a victim, you know, if you're not a celebrity and just a regular person like myself. Who are the perpetrators usually? Um, Is it somebody you know? So that's an interesting question. There was a research report that was released um, in 2019 and one in 2020 as well. It was by a company called, I think, Sensity, and they found that the most obvious and widespread misuse of deepfakes is, as you mentioned, non-consensual pornographic material. And that actually does account for about 96% of deep fakes on the internet at the moment. Does that research give us any any indication who's making it? Is it like a disgruntled ex-boyfriend or...? It can literally be anyone. So, yeah, you could have people that are really trying to misuse the technology for revenge porn. There was an example of somebody creating a deep fake to get their daughter into a competition. People aren't just misusing deep fakes for porn, even though that's the sort of thing that the media is more aware of. There was also a report in 2019 of a CEO of a UK energy-based company who was convinced by, they say at least, it's alleged deepfake audio scam to transfer money Mm. to an offshore bank account. So really we're at the start of the way in which this technology can be misused All right. So if you do find yourself the victim of a deep fake, where are the laws at with this stuff? What kind of legal avenues can you take right now? Australia is actually 
ahead of the game compared with lots of other countries because Australia has legislated against big tech companies to take down material like deepfake pornographic material. And so it has become easier to get YouTube and Facebook and companies to take down deepfake material that may be pornographic. But they're not the only places sharing the material, right? There's a lot of material that's shared on what's known as the dark web or sort of illegal sites. And that is much harder to get taken down because they're not really governed by any of our laws, really, because they're illegal sites in the first place. And that was Dr. Mashuda Glenn Cross from the University of Queensland. But let's return to Noelle for her final thoughts. Noelle, deepfake rocked your life at such a young age. You're now 21. What's this awful experience taught you about yourself? Oh, that's a good question. I think I've learned how to be resilient in the face of adversity. I've realised the strength that is in each of us, that if faced with a big problem that we think is just so beyond ourselves that we can overcome it and we can get around the other side. So that's Noelle Martin, who's become a law reform campaigner on the subject of deep fakes. Antoinette, one of the things that we didn't touch on, but which concerns me so greatly considering the misinformation that's been going on during this pandemic is the potential for deep fakes to misrepresent the news. I know there's mm-hmm. been a lot of that stuff going on. People just can't identify what is real and what isn't. Yeah, absolutely. It's getting so much, you know, more and more sophisticated. And at the one end, you have those funny clips of Barack Obama and things that we circulate and think are quite cute and funny. But you're right, there's a more sinister side. It's getting harder and harder to discern fact from fiction. And I do fear the impact that's going to have on misinformation. Listener.